Amen. You guys may be seated. Well, good morning, guys. Thank you for joining us this morning. Uh, if I haven't met you, my name is Walter. I'm grateful that you guys are here with us. Uh, I know that on this cold day, there are a lot of things you could be doing, but you've chosen to worship with us, and we're grateful. I want to make a note that this is the time where we are able to give our tithes and offerings. Uh, you have a couple of different ways you can give. You can give online. You can scan the QR code. Lots of different options. You can even give as you're exiting with our ushers. I would encourage you to give as the Lord may lead you to give. And use this as an opportunity to give to the things that God is doing here in our midst. That not only are we doing faithful ministry here and supporting missionaries and church plants around the world, but we also have the chance in just a few short months to go join on mission in Puerto Rico with a support partner down there. So incredible opportunity for you to give and to serve with us, and I encourage you to give as the Lord may lead you. Now, as we continue into our time of studying the Word today, we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 11, the last half of chapter 11, picking up where Pastor Brian left off. And I've titled today's sermon, The Identity of the Church. The Identity of the Church. You see, when we're looking at this section of Scripture, what we're going to see today is that this is the first time that the church, that people in the church, are called by the title Christian. That up until this point, they've been known as the brethren or the disciples or, or, or anything like that. But this is the first time that they're called Christian. You see, their, their behavior, their character it begins to stand out in stark contrast to the surrounding people. You see, they receive this new identifier in Antioch. And I think this is relevant for us today, particularly as we wrestle with living holy lives in this lost and dying world. We recognize the reality that we live in an era where the word Christian is perhaps one of the vaguest, most meaningless words in our language, right? It's thrown around so casually and commonly wherever you might go. To some, it means that they would have faith in a certain belief, a certain doctrinal system. To others, it just simply means that they're a member of a local church. It doesn't mean if they've been to the local church in the past 10, 15 years, but they're a member there, so they're a Christian. To yet other groups, it means that to be an American, you must be a Christian. Others, it just simply means that you act in a certain way or you're a part of a certain organization. You see, there are so many possible definitions of what a Christian should be, yet I would argue that every one of those misses the mark. Every one of those falls short of the true identifier of what it means to be a Christian. Now, I use this word identity in the title for a very specific purpose. You see, I think this word identity is necessary because our identity reflects completely and totally who we define ourselves as. And that not only is reflected in how we define ourselves, but it is then shown in how we act. Ultimately, I believe that if you're to be called a Christian, this means that all of who you are is wrapped up, is summed up by this word. If this is true, then we have to ask the question, what does it mean? What does it truly mean to be a Christian? 
How should we live if indeed we would identify ourselves as Christians, as Christ followers? Well, I believe that here in Acts chapter 11, that Luke, as he's writing this story, is addressing some of those realities for us, that he's answering for us to see, here is what it means to be a Christian. Here is what it means to follow Christ. If you would, would you stand and read with me God's word? We're going to be in Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 30. Beginning in verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking a word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit, there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place during the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for you today. We're thankful for your grace and mercy that's been revealed within your scriptures. We're thankful that you are a God who is not silent, who is not done speaking to his people. So, Lord, today as we study these scriptures, would you speak your truth from these pages to us? Would you allow us to see what it is that you're doing in our world in light of what you've done in the scriptures? May this show us how we're to live, how we're to think, how we're to act as Christ's followers, how we're to live in a way that will bring honor and glory to your name and your name alone. Father, we ask that you bless us today. Fill us with your spirit, reveal your truth to us, and let us encounter your holy presence. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. You guys may be seated. So as we've read in this section of scripture, we have some general information about the church and about how they're to act, how they've lived And I think we can break this up into kind of three identifiers as we look at the text of who we are to be and how we're to act as Christ followers. You see, our first point, our first benchmark, if you will, is that we are to be bold preachers. We're to be bold preachers of the gospel message. Look back at verse 19 through 21 with me. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, 
preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. So we're picking up here in chapter 19, and these first few verses are a little peculiar for us as we look at them, because this is actually referring to a past tense event. You see, when we look here, these first three verses are talking about what happened back when the church scattered in Acts chapter 8. And so if you remember back then, the church is scattering from Jerusalem due to some increased persecution. And in that time, these people who are Christians are now being scattered across the world, the known world at that time. And here they arrive in Antioch, about 300 miles north of Jerusalem, in what we would term modern-day Syria. Now, they've been scattered, and we view that scattering as a good thing, not because of persecution, but because it has the church being sent out on mission for Jesus. Now, we have this arrival here, and along the way, they're speaking this word, this gospel message to the Jews. And they're following the pattern of the church at this time. They're going to the Jews with a message of salvation. Yet here in verse 20, we see a little bit of a transition from them. You see, verse 20 shows us that some men of Cyprus and Cyrene come to this area in Antioch. And they share the gospel with what Luke uses the term to refer to Hellenist. Now, These people, specifically these people from Cyprus and Cyrene, they are Greek Jewish people from the region who really just seem like they want to share the gospel with people in their homeland. And who they're speaking with, there's a little bit of fuzziness here because Luke uses the word Hellenist interchangeably. You know, sometimes he talks to, uses the word to talk about Gentiles. Other times he uses the word to talk about Greek-speaking Jewish people. But based on our context here, He's probably talking about Gentiles, people like himself, people who are not a part of the covenant at this time. And yet, these people, these men from Cyprus and Cyrene, proclaim the good news of the gospel to these Gentiles. Now, what is it they proclaim? Well, they're proclaiming the Lord Jesus, what they know in terms of the gospel message. Well, what is it? To put it simply, they are proclaiming that God has created the heavens and earth. That God has created man to have a relationship with him. That mankind was intended to walk with God in the garden, filling the world with his image, his reflection of God's glory. And that we would have a deep relationship with God. That we were to not only know God, but we were to be known by God. Fully, deeply, completely. And then sin entered the world through Adam and Eve and their failures in the garden. And because of that sin, we've been corrupted by sin. And so not only are we guilty of those actions, but we're guilty of our own sinful behavior and actions. Yet into this story comes Jesus. Into this story comes the hero of the day who comes and rescues his people who were broken and trapped in sin and shame who came and lived the perfect life that we could not, who came and paid the debt of sin and shame so that we might have life in him. All that was necessary to receive this life, this forgiveness, this relationship with God was to trust in Jesus through faith. You see, that is what they proclaimed. That is the gospel message 
in its entirety. And so, as we see so often in Acts, when the gospel is proclaimed, God moves in the midst of his creation. Verse 21 shows us that a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Luke is very clear here to give the honor and glory for this directly to the Lord. He very specifically says that the hand of the Lord was with them. That this moment was done by God through the preaching of his gospel message. Now we've got to take this section of the book of Acts in context with the rest of the story, right? While we know by now that at this point that it's acceptable to proclaim the gospel message to Gentiles, these guys in Antioch, they've not heard that, right? This is before Peter's experience with Cornelius. And regardless of whether they know that's coming or they've been led by the Lord, they are ultimately doing something that is taboo to their culture because it's the right thing to do. You see, they do something that's contrary to the popular culture so that they might do the right thing to honor the Lord. That one was for free. You can keep that one. Ultimately, we see that the Lord blesses this work by bringing many people to faith in Antioch. You know, Luke uses the term many, and do you know what it means in the Greek? It means many. Like people came to faith and responded to the gospel message. And from here, we really need to take a step back and just understand the significance of this moment. Because we have the gospel beginning in Antioch. We have a church forming. And as we know from the rest of the book of Acts, that Antioch becomes a hub for church planting and mission to the Gentiles. Later on in Acts, this very church, they send Paul and Barnabas out as missionaries to reach people far from God across the known world. That The book of Acts shows us that their primary sponsors were the church in Antioch. As we take a step back from the biblical text, we know just by studying history that historically Antioch is considered to be the cradle of Christianity for the first few hundred years of the church. For the first few hundred years, Antioch was a hub for Christian doctrine and thinking. Some of the greatest and earliest contributors to the Christian faith, to the theology that we understand today, are people like Ignatius of Antioch and John Chrysanthem, who are from Antioch, who were discipled in the line of the church. But why is this important? Why is this important? Why am I just up here ranting and raving about Antioch? You see, the truth is, as we look at this section of Scripture, is that the trajectory of much of the ancient world was changed because of the bold preaching of a few people. The trajectory of the ancient world was changed because of the bold preaching of a few people. Paul goes out on multiple missionary journeys from Antioch, takes the gospel as far as Asia and Rome, We see that many of our modern thinkers owe a debt of gratitude to Antioch. You see, many lives were changed because of the bold preaching of a few faithful Christ followers. 
See, I need you to understand something here, something that I think is crucial to recognizing who we are as Christ followers, who we're called to be. If indeed we are called to be bold preachers of the gospel, we have to recognize a reality here. These men were not professionally trained. They were not skilled in rhetoric. They probably did not have any formal education in public speaking. They were simply ordinary people who were faithful to speak about the God of the universe to those around him. You see, this is what I mean by bold preachers. Not that you would stand on a stage and proclaim the truths of the scriptures, but that you would stand in your driveway and proclaim the good news of the gospel to your neighbors who are lost and dying. That we would trust, we would believe that we are called to proclaim the good news of the gospel to those around us. You see, we should be marked by the fact that we are proclaiming the good news of the gospel. People should look upon us and say, that person is a Christian. How do I know that? It's because they've shared the gospel with me constantly. That people should be marked by the fact that we are concerned about their spiritual destiny. Yes, I fully recognize that we should demonstrate the gospel, that there have to be acts of service and love. I recognize that. That's a part of who we are. But here's the truth. Faith comes by hearing. Faith comes by hearing alone. How can they hear the gospel if no one is going to proclaim it to them? As I was preparing for this sermon, I came across a study from LifeWay. It was a a few years old at this point, but LifeWay found that only three in ten unchurched Americans say that a Christian has ever shared with them one-on-one how a person becomes a Christian. That means three out of ten people who are far from God say they've heard the gospel from someone. That means 70% of those that are far from God have never heard a gospel message from the lips of you or I. There are many reasons that we might give of why we wouldn't do this or perhaps why we're concerned or just our inadequacy with this. Yet that same study also showed that about 80% of those surveyed, they surveyed over 2,000 people, 80% of those surveyed said that they would discuss freely the things of the faith if someone would just tell them about them. Only the remaining 20% indicated that they would have some discomfort or even change the subject as soon as possible. What that means for us, my friends, is that we have a world that is eagerly awaiting hope in the dark. We have a world that is looking for something, that is ready and willing to receive this gospel message of hope if only, if only there was someone to proclaim the good news to them. I simply have to ask you this question, and I think it's a crucial one. Indeed, if part of our identity is that we're to be bold preachers of the word, why has 70% of our country not heard the gospel message from us. I would just simply ask you, are you called to just be a member of the church like you're a part of a country club? 
Or are you called to share hope in the dark? It's a big question, I recognize that. But the truth of it is, is that a part of our identity, as we see here from the very scriptures, that we are called to proclaim the good news of hope. Not only that, but people are eagerly awaiting the good news of the gospel. Now, as we wrestle with we're to be bold preachers, the text doesn't end there, that we continue into the next section, and we see that not only are we to be bold preachers, but we're to be gentle witnesses of the faith. Look at verse 22. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people, and in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians." Well, we get to verse 22, and we recognize that news travels a little bit slower in the ancient world than it does now. Um, Believe it or not, they didn't have Twitter or social media, right? So they they weren't going to find out what was happening. And so by the time this news does arrive to Jerusalem, we understand it's been several years. And in verse 22, the church hears about it. And we recognize that they hear this and they think this is good news. That these Gentiles in Antioch have received the good news of the gospel and they rejoice. They send Barnabas, who is a native of that area, out to observe what's happening. And he's to go and and report back on what's happening. But also he's to strengthen the believers that are there. Now, from a context here, we know this is happening later on, a couple years later, because this has to be after Peter's time with Cornelius, because otherwise, why would the church bless it? They would have had a conversation about it, right? They're blessing and they're encouraging this work. They're sending Barnabas out to go minister to these people. And so Barnabas goes and takes a bit of time to get there. And verses 23 and 24, he sees this evidence of grace in the lives of these people. What that means is that he sees that they have changed because of the gospel message. The trajectory of their life has changed. They were on a path to hell, and now because of the good news of the gospel that they have trusted in, they are now united with Christ. So he then encourages them with further teaching and direction to how to live, how to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. He, he calls them to consistently worshiping and walking with God. And in the midst of this, the Lord blesses the church in Antioch yet again. And more people, many people are added to the Lord. What a beautiful reflection of God's faithfulness and his work in the lives of his people. As an intermission here, I want to talk about Barnabas because Barnabas is such an interesting man here in the book of Acts. We meet him actually earlier in the book of Acts in Acts chapter 4. He's a willing participant in the early church by giving of some funds that he has sold some land for, giving it to the church so they might care for those in need. 
We see that later on in the book of Acts that he connects Paul to the apostles and vouches for Paul before the apostles in Acts chapter 9. He's the one who puts his reputation on the line and says, this guy is no longer a murderer and persecutor of the church. He has been transformed by the grace of God. He's described here by Luke as being a good man, full of the Holy Spirit, just in these few verses. His name even means son of encouragement. It's kind of a guy you want in his corner, right? He's going to cheer you on. He's going to root for you. He's going to stand by you. I'm drawing our attention to him because I think that this is an example of the type of gentle witness that we are called to be. See, Barnabas is a willing servant to the church who gives his all with humility, gentleness, and respect. Even when we see how he treats Paul, this man who is at one time a persecutor of the church, well, frankly, it's shocking, right? Like Paul has literally come off his donkey after helping murder Christians and is going to kill more. And Barnabas treats them with kindness, respect, and trust. You know, it's kind of like he's listened to Jesus on this whole thing about how we're to treat our enemies. And so we see Barnabas is not perfect as we see through the book of Acts. But I think he's a shining example to us on what this gentle witnessing can look like. As we pick up our story here in verse 25, Barnabas is led to go to Tarsus to get Paul and they arrive back in verse 26 and they teach together for an entire year, training a great many people on how to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. I don't know if you called it here, but in verse 26, he says, they met with the church and taught a great many people. I don't know if you caught the significance of the word church in there. You see, I think it's interesting that Luke uses it right then. You know, it's the Greek word, ekklesia. It means the called out ones. It's commonly used in the New Testament to refer to the church, the body of believers, Yet so far in the book of Acts, Luke has only used it to refer to the church in Jerusalem. This is the first time that he's used it to refer to the Gentiles by this word, ecclesia, church called out ones. You see, what I believe he's doing is he's making a a note, perhaps a subtle one for us, but... He's giving equal value as a body of believers to not only this church, but to the church in Jerusalem. He's saying that this church in Jerusalem, we're grateful for what they're doing, but they're not any better than us, nor are they any worse than us. We serve one God who's united all people together in him. We are co-heirs with Christ. Together, we are one body. I think it's a beautiful message that he's getting across. And then in just the last half of the verse, it says, And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. In doing some research this week, um, I actually honestly found it kind of funny that in Antioch, this is the place where the disciples are first called Christians. I don't know what you know about the ancient world. Um, I, I don't know as much as some people. I'm not an archaeologist, but doing some research, you find some things out about ancient places. To sum it up, Antioch is a messed up city at this time. 
It's one of the three most important cities in the Roman Empire by this point. It's a melting pot of multiple cultures. So you've got Greeks, you've got Romans, you've got Jews, you've got Arabs, you've got Persians. I mean, it's just this melting pot of people. But it's also essentially known as the Las Vegas of the Roman Empire. The town is actually, in the ancient world, most famous for a temple that is enacted to worship Daphne, a minor Greek goddess. Daphne is a uh, Greek goddess who was pursued by the god Apollo, and in the midst of that, to thwart his advances, she had another god turn her into a tree, right? People believe those fairy tales, but they deny things like Jesus existed. We'll have a conversation about that later. Yet in this temple, they would reenact Apollo's pursuit of Daphne at her temple day and night using ritual prostitutes to enact the pursuit. You can imagine how far this might go in those days. A Roman writer named Juvenal remarked that the river Orontes that runs right through Antioch must connect to the river Tiber that runs through Rome because his city, Rome, has now become flooded with wickedness and evil. Antioch doesn't have a great reputation, right? What happens in Antioch stays in Antioch at this time. Yet it's in this place the disciples are first called Christians. I think it's interesting, and and I think it's important for us to understand what the word Christian means. You know, it roughly translates when we break down the Greek as anointed ones of the Messiah. Anointed ones of the Messiah. And it's in the cesspool of wickedness that the church finds its identity. You say they live as gentle witnesses to the grace of God in a dark and dying place. You know, just yesterday I was standing outside speaking to some of my neighbors and we got to talk for an hour or so and it was, it was a great conversation. But one of the things that came up in the midst of that was we we're talking about everything under the sun was how it seems like every politician today, you know, wants to talk about women's rights, right? They want to talk about women's rights and what's the only women's right that it seems like they want to talk about? Abortion. As if women don't do anything beyond get pregnant, right? Like, I mean, really, if we're going to address women's rights, like, let's talk about equal pay or something. Like, let's do something to address this. And as we're talking about that, and we're talking just about political sense there, you know, I laid my cards on the table and I said, you know, just so we're clear, like, I don't believe in abortion. I'm, I'm pro-life. I'm against that. But I think also addressing the reality that there are some deeper problems here where people are driven to this because of some greater factors that are playing in, right? And they looked at me and they, they said, you really think that? I was like, yeah, absolutely. And they said, well, how do you feel about people who go and who picket out at abortion clinics and scream hate and evil at these women who are pursuing abortions and considering this reality? I was like, well, those people aren't Christians. Those people are not Christ followers. I said, it is one thing to wait outside of an abortion clinic and to pray over the women who are going in. It's one thing to wait out there and to offer aid and service to these people. But I said, those people 
who would camp outside of a clinic and scream hate, who would talk about the evil that they're committing, who would proclaim that they are going to hell for their actions. They're going to hell for their own personal sin before they even step foot in those doors. The truth of it is, is that true Christians would stand outside and offer hope. True Christians would offer service. The devil himself offers hate and condemnation. But the Bible that I read, the the God that I serve, says that Jesus did not come into this world to condemn it, but to save it. That resonated with them. Because we were on the same page. They're not Christians, but they said, that's a God that I want to follow. You see, what we see here in the midst of Antioch is not that the church is picketing outside the temple of Daphne, condemning those inside if they won't repent. No, they proclaim and demonstrate the good news of the gospel to their city. They're bold preachers. They're gentle witnesses. And the city sees something so unique in them, so unique in their example, that they would give them this name that we share, Christians. The anointed ones of the Messiah. Now the church in Antioch didn't just proclaim the gospel and they didn't just serve as gentle witnesses. They, they gave of themselves. You see, I think a marker of our identity as Christians to live up this ideal, this standard has been set before us, not only by Christ, but by the church that has come before us, is that we are to live as sacrificial servants. Look at verse 27. Now in those days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So we have Agabus, who appears a couple times in the book of Acts, who is a prophet from Jerusalem. He's a part of the local church there. And he comes and he proclaims there's this coming famine that's going to go happen all over the known world at that time. And Luke gives us what is actually an important aside here when he mentions that it's taking place during the reign of Claudius. Um, Luke has actually given us some ability to go back and to verify what's happening. He, he's very detailed in his writing. And it lets us do things like what we're about to talk about for a moment. We actually have a pretty good idea of when this happened. We think we can pick out the exact time period this famine occurred. You see... Claudius, his reign was marked by a series of crop failures throughout the empire. We have Roman, uh, the writings that would attest to this. And we see through these writings that we have crop failures in Judea, in Rome, in Egypt, in Greece. Multiple locations where throughout his reign, things went wrong. We can see from some supporting documents from Egypt that they actually experienced a famine right around the year 46 AD. 
That's followed up by further Roman writing and Jewish writing that they experienced a famine in around 46 AD. Why is that important? It's not crucial to know that date or to be able to track that down to understand the text. However, I think it's important because it shows us the reliability of the scriptures. We can hold Luke and the other writers accountable because we can verify and back up the things that they're saying. The truth is that scriptures are not written in a vacuum. They're not just happening over here, not connected to anything else in life. No, the scriptures are written in a way that intertwines and connects with everything. They're ultimately supported by things like history and science, allowing us to see the truth of God in his word and in his world. Now, that was an aside for fun as we get back to focusing on this core idea of sacrificial servants. The church in Antioch, they're led to gather a collection to serve the Christians in Judea, and they send this effort to Jerusalem through Barnabas and Paul. We've got to be clear about the fact that they had to sacrifice in order to do this. That yes, it recognizes that they're giving of their, of their own as they're able, but the truth of this is they're not just giving their own funds, but they're recognizing that they are going to be impacted by this famine as well. We know from these historical documents that that year, by God's grace, that uh, the area around Antioch had what we describe as a bumper crop. They had a little bit extra that year. Yet, they would have been impacted by the reality that in every other surrounding area, there was famine. They were going to feel the pinch of increased cost at the market. It was going to be harder to find certain food and items. Despite this, they willingly give to serve those who will be without, even though it will likely cost them. You see, this is the heritage that we have as Christians. We see a group of people who are so committed to the cause of Christ that they'll give out of their own pocket, even if it hurts, to serve strangers who are in need. Why? Simply because this is how they want to be faithful to the Lord. You see, it's this, this idea of being a sacrificial servant combined with being a bold preacher and a gentle witness. You see, this is what guides us into what it means to be a Christian today. Simply put, to, to close, I, I want to wrestle with this idea of the anointed one of the Messiah. This anointed one means that something has been placed upon you. Anointing is using oil or other elements to signify that there is something that has been done in a religious sense. Within the scriptures, we use this idea of anointing to talk about anointing those who are coming in a prayer of faith for healing. Within the Old Testament, as a part of the worship rituals of anointing, what does it mean to be an anointed one of the Messiah? Does it mean that you model these things? No, that's a byproduct of being an anointed one. What does it mean to be an anointed one? It means that you've been anointed with the shed blood of Jesus Christ. That he has bore your, your shame and God's wrath upon that cross. 
And in exchange, he has given you and I his righteousness, his perfection, his holiness. So that when God the Father looks upon us, he does not see our sin, our shame, our unworthiness. He sees his son. He sees his son who paid the debt for all who would believe so that we might have life eternal in him. That is what it means to be an anointed one of the Messiah. I think these points are helpful for us, though, to recognize that if any of those are lacking in our lives, that should cause us to wrestle with a heart and to see what the Lord is doing. If all of them are lacking in our life, and that truly has us hit the brakes and go, am I even a Christ follower? If there is no presence of his identity in my life, then am I walking with the Lord? Now you might say, I don't want to doubt, I don't want to wrestle. Yet the Puritans would argue that doubt is indeed a good and beautiful thing. Because they recognize that if we have to wrestle with who we are and truly study our hearts, only good things come from that. It means that if we're in Christ, that we might find sin and kill it before it kills us. It means that we might live in a way that will bring further honor to God and his kingdom. Or it might mean that we wrestle with our heart and realize that we have a cold, dead heart of stone that needs Jesus to breathe life into it yet again. I would ask you today, you have a living, beating heart that is the same one that Jesus has? Or is your heart cold and dead and in need of resuscitation? What's being offered before you is that very gift from Jesus. That very gift that you and I have opportunity to cry out to the Lord for. Here in the next few moments, we'll pray together. We'll pray for God to move, but what I'm going to pray for each of you, for me, that God would let my heart beat for him. That Jesus would be on the throne of my life and I would worship him as king. It's the very thing I'm praying for you today, no matter where you are in your spiritual journey. If you're watching online or if you're here and you just don't feel like talking to someone, you can go to our website, homesavenue.com forward slash contact. You can let us know if you're watching online or if you're here, what God is doing in your life. We'd love to follow up with you and hear what God is doing. While you're here today, I would love to hear what God is doing in your life, where he is stirring and moving your affections towards But if you would, would you take a moment and go to the Lord in prayer with me? Would you bow your heads? Father, we are thankful for you today. We're thankful for the example that you have given on how to live that is Jesus. We're thankful for this rich heritage we have as Christians. Centuries of the church living as you have called them to live, acting as 
examples of those who have gone before us who have lived in a way that is holy and pure. But Father, in the midst of that, we recognize that Jesus didn't come just to be an example. He came to be a savior. He came to seek and save the lost. That every one of us, we are either lost right now or we have been lost. And in the midst of that, Jesus came so that whoever would believe in him might have forgiveness of sins and eternal life. That he came not to condemn us for our sin, but to save us. So Lord, it is this message that we proclaim to you. That you and you alone have power to save. That it is the name of Jesus by what we are saved that his blood will never lose his power and he will never cease to save those who would call out to him. So Father, we pray with confidence and assurance that you as a holy, loving God will always save those who cry out to you. So Lord, today, what I ask from you is simply this. That for every man, woman, and child here, that our hearts would beat with new life given to us by Jesus. That for anyone who has a cold, dead heart, that you would bring life to them. If anyone is guilty of their sin and has not pursued repentance, that they would repent today and trust you. That if there are any of us who are found in Christ and we have wandered away from the path you have set, Lord, that we would repent and come back home. We would come back home so that you might embrace us as the Father did for the prodigal son. Lord, we recognize that you are a good, holy, just God. And in the midst of that, you made a way for unrighteous, rebellious people to know you and to worship you. That way is Jesus, and it's to him that we give all honor and glory and praise. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.